This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. GI motility and functional disorders of the digestive system affect up to 25% of the U.S. population and comprise about 40% of the gastrointestinal problems for which patients seek health care. Joining us to discuss a new method for evaluating these problems and for treatment of them are Dr. Divi Minosha, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Department of Gastroenterology at Upstate Medical University, and Ms. Rhonda Ferry, a patient who can share her experiences regarding these issues. Welcome to you both. Thanks, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you very much, Linda, for having us on the show. So, Dr. Minosha, let me start with you. Help us understand what we mean when we use the term gastrointestinal motility problems. What are they? So, uh, Linda, gastrointestinal motility problem means that a normal uh, gastrointestinal tract uh, motor function is dependent on a complex, uh, coordinated fashion of firing of the nerves which supply the, this GI tract these nerves supply the smooth muscle cells lining the esophagus or the food pipe, the stomach, the small bowel, and the large bowel, which helps to push the food down from the food pipe towards stomach, small, and then large bowel in a coordinated fashion. And any uh, abnormality with this coordination mechanism leads to GI motility disorder, which, as you already mentioned, they are so very prevalent and to a very large extent underdiagnosed in the U.S. population. So give me a hint, just a sense of some examples. So would something like um, chronic constipation, for example, would that be fit yes. into that category? So if we go from top to bottom, in the food pipe or the esophagus, we may have dysphagia, which is a trouble swallowing. trouble in the swallowing. Uh, then we may have a refractory heartburn because of the reflux of the acid into the esophagus. Then in the stomach, we have a unique condition called gastroparesis, which incidentally my patient today, Rhonda Ferry, also is uh, experiencing that condition. Then you have small bowel bacterial overgrowth syndrome in the small bowel. And then you may have chronic constipation, fecal incontinence, uh, the symptoms are very subtle, but the spectrum is really widespread. How about something that you hear about quite often, something like irritable bowel disease? Is that also part of this? Yes. It is actually one of the most common um, GI motility disorder. It's, it's more like a symptom complex. The patient have gone to multiple physicians uh, for evaluation of their chronic abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation, and then eventually come to us, uh, the gastroenterologist, for further evaluation. And after excluding all the more worrisome diagnosis, we eventually reach uh, the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. So tell me, you mentioned gastroparesis as one of these disease entities. Yes. Let's talk about what that is, because Rhonda's here with us today, and she can give us more of a personal view on that. What exactly is it, though, from a medical standpoint? Definitely. So gastroparesis is a medical symptom complex. It, it, it's a disorder of the stomach in which you have, uh, the patient has intractable nausea and vomiting, uh, which gets worse after eating regular food. And it happens because the stomach is not able to empty out the f food particles down into the small bowel. Do we understand what causes this to happen and, and who is most likely, you know, who's most at risk for this problem? Yes, I will take the second question first. So the, the most common uh, age group 
is uh, young to middle-aged women who are at highest risk for this disorder. Uh, in spite of our extensive workup, uh, we are able to pinpoint the exact etiology or the exact cause of gastroparesis. You're saying we're not able to. We are able oh. to pinpoint the cause in about three-fourths of these, uh, about three-fourths of the times. Uh, what has been found is that the final common pathway for gastroparesis is that the big nerve or the vagus nerve that supplies the whole GI tract, including the stomach, somehow the, these uh, various causes, which I will uh, enumerate in a bit, they tend to damage the nerve endings of the vagus nerve, which causes disorganization in the contractility or the contraction mechanism of the smooth muscle cells of the stomach, which leads to the gastroparesis. So basically there's some kind of a disorder or a damage to the nerve fiber that would in innervate the muscles and that's why the stomach doesn't empty. Correct. So basically some of the signs and symptoms, well let's, let's turn to Rhonda. So you have had this condition, gastroparesis. Tell us, tell us your story. What how did you first know it? What did you experience? What has it been like? Um, in January of 2015, it started where I just wasn't feeling well um, when I ate mostly. And I thought, you know, what's going on here? I would get very bloated after I ate. I could eat just small portions of food. Um, I would get very nauseous a lot. Um, after I ate, I would feel like I had like a brick in my stomach. That's the only way I know how to describe it. Um, that went on for a long time and I wasn't sure what was happening. I did have acid reflux, so I thought, well, maybe this is just part of it. Um, but as time went on, it got worse. I wasn't able to eat. If I did eat, I could only eat like maybe a quarter cup of food at a time without having issues. Um, so then I slowly started losing weight because of not being able to eat. Um, and from... How much weight did you actually lose? I lost 44 pounds. Wow. Yeah. Um, from January 15th until November um, 16th. And for the, year the, 15. for the benefit of our listeners who can't <clears throat> see you, Rhonda, you are a slight person to begin with. I mean, you're petite. So that... Is quite a lot of weight for it you is to a have lot dropped. Of it yes. is. It is. Um, so, you know, I thought, okay, it's time to go see the doctor. You know, what, what's going on here? I was just so sick, so sick. So let me turn back to Dr. Minoshi. So we taught, you alluded to causes. Now, we said the cause was damage in some way to the nerves, of the vagus nerve. What causes that to occur? Is it viral? Is it some, some insult that, you know, some kind of a, a, an infection that may occur? Yes, so the spectrum of etiology for uh, uh, gastroparesis is very widespread or varied. Uh, in about one-fourth of uh, the patients, uh, it's the long-standing diabetes, which is a very common cause, uh, especially when it's uncontrolled. So she, excuse me for interrupting you, but so is Rhonda a diabetic as well? Yes. <clears throat> I see. So you had the pre-existing diabetes going on. Exactly. And in this case, was that the causation of yes. the gastroparesis? Okay. Yes. Uh, then 
In about 5 to 10% of the patient, it's a viral gastroenteritis illness, which, is, uh, which may precipitate this uh, problem that may then linger on for weeks to months and sometimes for years we have seen. So in other words, basically what you're suggesting is you could just have some kind of a viral insult to the body, some virus. Correct. And it could even show up as a URI or something like that, upper yes. respiratory, and it could literally damage the vagal nerve. Yes. Then... Uh, in the, in the more recent years, we have seen that as more and more patients are undergoing the gastric bypass weight loss surgery and, and other upper GI surgeries for the esophagus for refractory reflux disease, this is another subset of patients that accounts for about 20 to 24% of the gastroparesis uh, patient subset. Then other less common causes are uh, neurological disorders like Parkinson's disease. Then there are certain muscle disorders like scleroderma, certain chemotherapy radiation treatments. And but for some patients, you don't know. Exactly. So in percentage. spite of all the workup that we do to find out the cause, in about a quarter of these patients, we eventually label them as idiopathic or gastroparesis of unknown etiology. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with gastroenterologist Dr. Divi Manosha and his patient, Ms. Rhonda Ferry. And we're talking about GI motility problems, their diagnosis and treatment, and specifically a problem known as gastroparesis. So what are the potential complications besides weight loss that occur with something like gastroparesis? I mean, obviously, if you can't empty the stomach and you can't eat, weight loss is a major one. What other things can happen? Yes. So uh, long-standing gas gastroparesis can lead to progressive worsening of uh, nausea and vomiting, which is mostly postprandial. The patient tends to... After they've eaten. Yeah, feel full after eating small portions of meal, and eventually they develop aversion to the food uh, just because it's so distressful to have even small portions of food uh, of during the daytime. Um, so over, do they literally experience things like malnutrition, for example? Exactly. So over months to years, they, attend, they tend to develop dehydration. They tend to develop progressive weight loss like Rhonda developed. And then they develop nutritional deficiencies, vitamin, mineral deficiencies, malnutrition. In... Uh, patients who are diabetics, there are sudden fluctuations in the blood sugar levels, which causes even worsening of the control of the diabetes. And uh, one of the less common but potentially life-threatening complication of gastroparesis is called a food bezoar, in which the particles of food which have uh, been retained in the stomach for a long time, they tend to accumulate together to create a hard ball of, it's, it's called a food ball, and this food ball can potentially cause acute obstruction in the GI tract, which can be life-threatening and needs to be treated urgently, endoscopically or surgically. So they can be removed either endoscopically or surgically Correct. if necessary. But those that could be pretty scary, I yes. imagine. So let's get back to the treatments. I, I don't want to run out of time. How do you basically address this problem? I mean, are there medications? Is it surgically? Is it endoscopically treated? Help us understand how you would treat gastroparesis. Yeah, very good question, Linda. Uh, the treatment of gastroparesis is essentially multidisciplinary uh, in nature, and that's what we try to provide at Upstate Medical University. It involves uh, the lead person is, of course, the gastroenterologist who's guiding the care of these patients. 
It involves a primary care provider, the nutritionist or the dietitian for dietary advice and other specialty, specialty providers for the patient. So essentially, the way I describe the treatment to my patient is fourfold. One is the nutrition aspect, the dietary aspect. So in the patient who have refractory symptoms but have not developed malnutrition, we tend to make some dietary changes in coordination with the nutritionist. Essentially what it means is eating small five to six portions of food on a daily basis, uh, having less of fiber or raw vegetables or fruits in, the, in their food, then having low fat but high carb diets and if the patient does not tolerate solid meals, then we tend to prefer pureed or liquid um, meals for them. So basically, you can make some changes by altering their intake. Yes. But I, I don't want to run out of time. Let's get to what other things, either medically or surgically or endoscopically, are needed to be done. Yeah. So we do have uh, uh, various medications which are available. The medications to help augment or improve the motility of the stomach, these include the Reglan or the metoclopramide, but unfortunately that has a FDA warning regarding some neurological side effects. So the tolerability is somewhat uh, not widespread. Then we have another restricted medication called Domperidone. There's a third medication called Cisapride. These two are restricted medications from FDA. But there are medications that work, but again, um are you do do you literally do any kind of endoscopic treatments or surgical treatments to help the stomach empty? Is yes. that part of it? So in the initial diagnosis, endoscopy is very essential. After that, on a case-to-case -case basis, I offer a botulinum injection uh, to my patient, like That's... I did in Rhonda's case, at the opening of the stomach. Then we do place feeding tubes in patients who have suffering from weight loss. Uh, these are called the GJ or the feeding tube that goes from the stomach into the small bowel where we totally bypass the feeding through the stomach. And then in extreme cases, surgically, we may have to place long-term feeding tubes or remove the bezos as we already discussed in the earlier part of the conversation. So in Rhonda's case, you used Botox and that helped basically allowed the, the food to empty more readily? Yes, it, it mainly helped in the nausea and the vomiting symptoms in case of Rhonda, but uh, the, the, sim the symptoms tend to get better over weeks to months. Uh, so we are still following up her symptoms very closely. It was placed just like two weeks ago. Now you have a new technique. It's called mononetry. Mononetry? Manometry. And is that fairly new, and, and is that mostly a diagnostic technique? It's high-res? So in the past year or so, we, are, we have developed a mortality laboratory at Upstate Medical University, where we are using the state-of-the-art high-resolution manometry, both for the esophagus and the anorectal, to further diagnose or to better diagnose the motility disorders of the GI tract. So that's an exciting new technology. Yes. And it, it is available for use for the central New York population. We are, we are going, reaching out to the public for further evaluation of their symptoms. So Rhonda, how are you doing now? I'm doing better than I was. I, um, I have a feeding tube. Um, I still don't eat as well as I'd like to. Most of the time I just drink like an inshore during the day because it's what my stomach can handle. There are other days that I can 
eat a little bit of food and I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And then other days I'm not okay. So it's, so it's, it's, it's a variable. Day, day-to-day thing. And you require continual, I would imagine, evaluation and help. Yes, to continue to treat this. Well, thank you both so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. It's a a very, very complex uh, um, number of disorders, but the gastroparesis is really obviously quite, quite challenging. So I thank you both for coming in and sharing it with us. And also these new diagnostic techniques sound very exciting and very, it's wonderful to have them here in the central New York area. Rhonda, thank you so much for coming in. My guests have been Dr. Divi Minosha. He's assistant professor of medicine in the Department of Gastroenterology at Upstate Medical University. And Ms. Rhonda Ferry, a patient who has been so kind to share her experience with us. Thank you both again. Thank you. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.